Hi there. Welcome to the Artist Appeals, the podcast where we try to answer the question, how do you make money as an artist? I'm your host, Aaron Sperler, and today's episode, we talk with a highly acclaimed artist. He's a science fiction fantasy artist. His work has been on magic cards. He's illustrated many, many a scene from Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings, and he has won lots of awards, including the Hamilton King Award for Excellence, Society of Illustrators 2008. He's won the World Fantasy Award for Best Artist 2004. He's won several silver and gold awards, as well as honorable mention from Spectrum's Best of Contemporary Fantastic Art. He's won 18 Chelsea Awards from the Association of Science Fiction and Fantasy Artists, including their World Award for Artistic Achievement in 2002. And he's won the Hugo Award for Best Professional Artist in 2006, 2007, and 2009. So without further ado, please help me welcome our latest interview with Donata Gincola. All right. How are you today? Oh, all right. We're just busy in the studio. What's Sorry that? Sorry about the little delay. I just had to, uh, was dealing with a phone call with my daughter who's in Copenhagen uh, with the uh, phone issues, trying to get her phone set up. So, No problem at all. Yeah. I was just uh, checking out the internet, reading all about you and all sorts of good stuff. Um, you have two daughters. How old are they? Oh, uh, let's see, 19, oh, let's see, almost 19 uh, and 21. <laughs> so, oh, wow. And she's in Copenhagen? Which one? The one, one the el- the- yeah, the elder one is uh, doing a semester abroad uh, in Copenhagen. Oh, that's so cool. Lucky girl. Yeah, she's having a good time. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Hey, I was checking out. I saw you um went to UVM that you're from Vermont. Yes. Yeah. That, uh yeah, you know, the first, I guess, you know, it's funny, it's the first half of my life now is in Vermont. The other half is here in Brooklyn. Yeah. This is so neat. I am, um, I'm from Pennsylvania, but we had a condo at um, Burlington uh, oh. in Stratton. And okay. I grew up skiing Stratton. And then I went to St. Catherine Capers in the summers. So I went to summer camp in Vermont. Then I ended up going to UVM. And it looks like I was there just a couple of years after you. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How funny. Yeah. I mean, mean, it was a great, great place. It just wasn't right for art uh, when I finally made that move uh, with my career. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I got a, I think I got a dual major in uh, studio art and um, product design and development. Oh, really? You had had studio arts. Yeah. 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 So. So it was. Chris, let's see, Chris Campbell there. Did you? Yeah, Chris Campbell to, and Frank yeah. Owen. Did you have Frank? Frank, uh, wait, Frank, what was the last name? I, his last name was Owen. Oh, he was one of the painting instructors, I believe. Oh, yes. Yeah, Frank. Oh, that's right. Yeah, actually, Frank was my, my first painting teacher. And Chris was actually the very first art class ever that I took. <laughs> uh in terms of like formal like you know outside of like grade school art classes and stuff right my first and she just like blew my mind like she (laughs) opened and I think that's part of what you know like 
how I like and reason and the reason why actually I also I teach is that I could not be the artist I am today without those people. They they you know I had an idea about how to make art. I was a fan. I drew all the time, but right be able to be objective about art and talk about it and be systematic about assessing what you're attempting to do. That's right. what teachers. Yeah, that's what you need teachers for. So so did you have Chris for drawing as well? I don't recall who I had for drawing, but no, I but took you, remember, some... you had Chris Campbell as a as a teacher, though. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. I don't yeah. remember exactly what classes I had. And I did take some drafting classes as well for that product oh. design and development. Oh, right. OK. That dual major. So I was able to take a bunch of the fine art classes and overlap them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually started out as a physics major, believe it or not. Wait, no way. Because that's like, I mean, did you read about, I mean, that's, I was in engineering. No way. That's so crazy. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, yeah, I was, I started off in electrical engineering Uh for, and then the second, uh, my sophomore year, the first semester, mid semester, I dropped out of my classes in engineering. Why was it you? for you? When did you switch? It was it was um late freshman, early sophomore year, somewhere in that range. I was like, oh, physics thing, is huh? so boring. <laughs> Just oh, and having to do things to like, I forget, but one of the professors in calculus made you calculate the equations to the closest. I think it was the fourth or sixth decimal place. It was really far in. And I'm like, oh, please, you're killing me. <laughs> well, you know, that's the science that's needed to send probes to Mars, right? Yeah. That to, to communicate with satellites in space, to, to talk as we are right now, right? Yeah. You need people who can bring that dedication and precision to their craft. Yeah. And yeah. It was when we hit relativity. I was like, oh, mind blown. No. Yeah. That was, yeah. (laughs) I think, yeah, physics class was the uh, field wave duality and electromagnetics. (laughs) And that just was like, I was starting to lose it there. You know, I love math. Yeah, it was. I do too. I love math. I love perspective. I love you know, those, but I like round numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like pie. <laughs> you don't like pie. <laughs> no, I like there's apple just... pie, there's pumpkin pie, and there's just pie. And yeah. Just plain I... old pie just kills you. <laughs> I prefer loosey goosey numbers. I prefer to just round up and estimate. <laughs> okay. So what, I mean, is there anything particular where we can rant on about uh, EDM and arts and uh, all of that? Right, right, right. Well, actually, I normally start out the podcast with five or six rapid fire questions. But, you know, sometimes it's just fun to get to know people, too. I mean, really, in a way, this podcast is kind of a selfish endeavor. Um, I left teaching. I used to teach, too. And I left teaching to have children. And um, I started a craft company making kinesthetic crafts. Kinesthetic chipboard embellishments is what they're called. They're little paper animals. All right. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. I love starting out with these five rapid fire questions. So I'm going to hit you up real quick with number one. What is your number one top selling piece of all times? What is your most popular 
or most successful piece that you've ever made? Oh boy. Top selling. Well, I get, I get, you know, we'd have to go to like prints and things, but it'd be probably the golden rose. It's a picture of a woman and her friend nursemaid on the beach with some mermen dead around them, like waves washing up. Uh, so it's a very tragic image, but mm. it was my most awarded piece. And it's been one of my best, you know, best-selling prints. Uh, and I've seen artists referencing it from all around the world, uh, Europe, China, South America, Australia. Like uh, riffing so off of it. Like doing... Um, no, just either commenting about it uh, or sharing it. And just, I know that it's it's out there. It's just, you know, it's it's beyond my control. It's just copied and pasted and populated uh, all over the place. So yeah. it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Interesting. Yeah. Why do you think that one? I, you know, it's... Um, it's graphic for one. I, I designed, it was a book cover illustration. So mm -hmm. I intentionally designed it to have a certain level of graphic structure to read well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just the tragic nature of the narrative that I utilized. Uh, it's not about glorified battle or conflict or even like cultural. Uh, well, it's certainly Western mythological, uh, right? Because of the, the mermen and the mer actually they're mermen, they're not even mermaids. So they're, uh, but it's the idea also of saying goodbye to somebody who's dying, comforting mm. uh, like a dying friend or someone who has recently passed to say goodbye. So it's a universal uh, emotional condition that spans every single culture. Uh, uh, I, right. that, that, and that's part of the, what I'd like to do in my work is try to find uh, connections, visual connections, emotional connections, to my audiences so that you don't have to have the language barrier disappears and yeah. you communicate very, right emotionally to an audience. Oh yeah. That is so powerful. And that actually, number two, the second question is what is the one thing you love to create, do, or make? It sounds like that leads into it. <laughs> well, it is, uh, boy, it's, I love telling stories. And whether that's through science fiction, fantasy, surrealism, contemporary realism, mythological mm -hmm. histories, it doesn't matter. And, and I, across the board, what I tried to do is just communicate human connection, human stories. And so I don't tend to draw a lot of paintings with monsters and creatures in them. Right. Uh, usually if they are there, they're usually in service of another narrative or I inject them the creatures with emotional structure to try to connect you know them to the humans that might be uh you know represented in those images interesting so on the flip side what is the one thing you really hate to do or create or make <laughs> <laughs> oh i don't know oh hey it's not so much that there's a thing that i dislike but there's a methodology that I don't like, and that's being told what to paint, you know, as a creative individual. It's like, well, why you went to the craft store, right? Or you were looking, you were like frustrated with that choice yeah. or lack of choice in a way. So the lack of choice being a creative person is what I try to steer clear of. So if, if someone, uh, you know, a potential client uh, sends me a list of things they want to have appear in the illustration, and how they want it to feel, then it's just 
starts deadening my mm. initiative. And usually I just say no. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, find somebody else. I've got, I've, luckily I have other choices and I have enough other material and audiences that I don't have to take everything that comes in the door. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, what is the funniest or weirdest experience as an artist and creating that you've ever had? Funniest or weirdest? Wow. Like, have you ever, well, for example, have you ever had a piece stolen or maybe damaged? Um, Don Mates was on and he told the story of driving away with wet oil paintings on his car and then flying off (laughs) before a very, very important presentation in New York City and going back and finding them getting like driven over in the sand and the salt and the snow and having to fix them. (laughs) See, uh, there's that phrase. uh, Tragedy is when someone else dies. I don't know. you know, it's funny is when someone else dies and tragedy is when you stub your toe or something. like like that like, <laughs> like what you're talking about like I don't think that would have been funny to go back and find your painting in the in the moment right right no he so said that. he was like blubbering in the middle of the parking lot of like a McDonald's because it was three um pirate paintings that he did and he had a presentation in new york city that they were due at in hours Wow! and um he tried to fix them up and they eventually merged and became captain morgan these paintings that were really yeah yeah Yeah. so he actually pulled it off he did he pulled it out boy you know funny yeah i don't know boy funny tragic weird tragic no I guess I don't never really thought about my art like quite like that of uh, strange moments. I'm sure there's a lot of anecdotal things I could probably pull throw out. Throw one out there. <laughs> What's your favorite anecdotal moment? Has anybody ever said anything to you that? Just well, there's there's, there's like embarrassment like- things. Like like actually, it doesn't even have to so much do with art making as much as just my age or incompetence with something. So, you know, I'm giving a presentation at the Society of Illustrators maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. And uh, the, I'm getting up to the podium and they hand, you know, my, my presentation is on a laptop. Right. Uh, I've never owned a laptop. Uh, and so they hand me the laptop. It's an Apple laptop. So it's nice and slick and smooth. And I have no idea. I've never handled a laptop. I don't know how to open it. <laughs> so here I am in front of you know this audience of people, and I'm like, "Where do you grab?" <laughs> so oh, that's fantastic. the thing is, I'm pretty computer savvy. I mean, I, I I write my own HTML code for my website for ten plus years. Right. Uh, I updated it. I you know I use it. You know all this, but I've never used a laptop until that moment. <laughs> And so in apples, since they're so smooth and slick, I didn't know like that little hole, like where to get your fingernail in and you know, the right side to open it up. So oh, there you fantastic. go. That, yeah. So that's like one of those dumb things that just, I, I always remember in an embarrassment uh, <laughs> of what happened to me. So. Oh, thank you. That's fantastic. I love it. Apple is really like, if you've never had an Apple product, they are so well designed and so organic that they yeah. really are like, how do I, what do I, and the functionality is so different than a PC. 
Yeah, really uh, I guess so, right? Or, yeah, the interfacing software structures, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so there, there's, there's one moment that I could, like, I think of, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I have plenty of other stories, like, but I don't know if they're, they're, I don't think of them as comedic as much as just interesting little trips that I've, you know, been on and uh, <laughs> with art, yeah. What a long, strange trip it's been. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay, so what is the one most important piece of advice you would probably give yourself today if you were just starting out again? Oh, like go back to that young Donato. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. What would you uh, tell yourself? And you know, tell more of my own stories. Oh, um, that that's something that I see now. Uh, you know, when we look at how pop. Our culture, not just pop culture, but culture in general, consumes ideas, consumes stories uh, that they're looking for new things, new ideas, not necessarily regurgitations on what's already come before. Interesting. So like the great, you know, the things that we take now is like just cultural foundation, like Star Wars or Star Trek. Right. right, Tarzan or Conan the Barbarian or Harry Potter. Harry Potter's yeah. more close, right? But you know, drive, you know, move forward fifty years, and Harry Potter will seem like this. It's always been there, right? Uh, right. But it's those had sparks of initiation by a single person. Yeah. Uh, Walt Disney, right? Walt Disney Studios now started by a single person right? With his ideas, their ideas, bringing a few people to work together. Right. Uh, right. It's, it's, so those, that's the, the awareness that our uh, culture and even probably world culture is relies on imaginative plays of reinvestment in ideas and exploration. Is, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's fascinating. So you're essentially saying you feel like these stories that become so foundational in our culture have to have a start somewhere. Right. Yes. Yeah, and they do. so why not? But they have to. They have. <laughs> yeah. It's not like it has. Right. And it's recognizing the importance of that individual's contribution to yeah. what then, you know, the butterfly that stirs into the vault, you know, the tornado. You know, right. admittedly, that's there's more to Walt Disney Studios than Walt Disney, the person. Right. Right. Um, so it's but that initial spark. And so I guess that's what I would like to go back to and tell myself. You don't have to always play in other people's worlds, mm. even though I do. I love it. I you know, like Tolkien, Middle Earth. Yeah, I'm a huge Middle Earth fan. So yeah. I'm always playing it. But then I, I've got my robot series that I'm doing, my empathetic robots. That's all me. Yeah. Um, and so that's, so in a way, I wish I had started that series 15 years earlier. I see. Uh, to start generating the volume of material like the way I have Middle Earth now. Right, right. Yeah. Are you writing um, a story to go with your empathetic robots? Are you going to do a book or anything? Nope. <laughs> oh. like, what? What? I know, right? Because uh, I'm not a writer. I, I'm horrible. Like, Look, I, I make I make pictures, right? <laughs> and but you tell I'm stories. Story, but I I am a visual storyteller, right? Uh, and and you know, going back to that initial that uh the comment that I made about emotional connection, 
Uh-huh. Each one of my robot paintings is about emotional conditions. Mm. So I am attempting to create uh, and, and tap into emotional moments without having to have a world built structure to mm-hmm. organize those occurrences yet. So, I'm, okay. so that, yeah, so rather than like world building from externally, I'm starting from little nodes and seeing what connections are then created to then build the world. I like that. Well, I mean, they don't necessarily have to be on a world either, right? right. I mean, That's true. it could be Marvel's created the multiverse and changed our... <laughs> <laughs> well, even like I, I back in the 80s when I was reading comics, yes, that's actually part of the issue is like each like Spider-Man has his own origin, like Iron Man. And, yeah. And DC was even worse because they almost had different worlds like Gotham and Metropolis, right. like, you know, Gotham for Batman, Metropolis for Superman. They didn't actually yeah. kind of exist in the same world. No. And yet when they started having them interact, you had to justify it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so DC had this horrible universe problem of all these different <laughs> wor- universes that they that weren't didn't operate together so right. it's not my own like i didn't invent this issue this problem <laughs> it, it's been pre-existing it's you're like, just gonna uh, solve it yeah oh i'm gonna no, no, no <laughs> i don't want to no because it's like because where else are the new people gonna be right you want to yeah. have multiple you want to have the multiverse because that's where the new ideas come from yeah. yes, yes yeah keep, yes. It, keep it going yeah well, there's a last question that I've been liking to throw, liking to throw out. I've been wanting to throw out to artists, and this is a more philosophical one about money. Why do you think it is that some artists are able to charge a lot of money for their work and um, others never quite reach that point? Are there any great tips you could give people for increasing your prices and feeling comfortable with it and feeling comfortable with what you... Um, ask your asking price. I think, you know, a lot of beginning artists, we tell them, raise your price, raise your price, charge more. But how do you actually do that? Wow. That's a tough one. Uh, I know. I, I asked the hard question. Because, because it's a, <laughs> it's a road that tra- you travel and it, it's an, o- it's a oscillating scale. Oh. So uh, sometimes you can charge more, other times you can't. And it depends on the client structure, the marketing structure, uh, and they, you know, the sad realize that the reality is just because you get better and you get older doesn't mean you're going to make a lot more money. And yeah. that's, that's a tough thing to accept that it doesn't, there's, there's not like a, a guaranteed maturing price scale association with your work that the older, better you get, that your prices automatically go up. Right. Um, Right. So that is like, that's hard, but the way value is added into work, it's a, boy, that's a, it's a, (laughs) like, you know, there's I'm sure you've probably heard that it's, it's not, there's no easy answer. It is related to marketing marketing and not so much that you're trying to push your ideas on mm-hmm. people but marketing and the idea that you create integrity and consistency over a series of works 
mm-hmm. that then people can identify with what you do as an artist. So um, you really think it's linked to your voice and collections and consistency, huh? That's part. Yeah, that's and that's one. <laughs> that's one aspect. Right. Then there's the other aspect of getting luckily. And, and this is not really talks so much about the inherent value to the artwork, but it's association with pop cultural items. Like, oh, let's say you, you, as a book cover illustrator, you do Harry Potter's first novel cover, right? right. JK Rowling's uh, first novel cover. Guess right. what? You just hit a gold mine and it doesn't have to do with the integrity, right? Of that individual image. Mm-hmm. It's just an association with a spinoff, a product. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot of, like, it's hard to say, like, is it justified? Like, as an example of value, there is uh, a page, a comic page from a, uh, actually, that multiverse thing that we're talking about with Marvel, Marvel's Secret Wars. Back in the 80s, they were having a, a book about trying to cut off these loose ends and right. Spider-Man is introduced with his new suit, all black. And, but it's the character Venom who's really lurking as the suit. Right. And so that page, that splash page in the comic went for $3.3 million. No way. <laughs> yes. Wow. It sold an auction at heritage auction public. So two people slugging it out. Usually that's where value is added to artwork. Right. $3.3 million for a black and white splash page. And admittedly, the artist sold that page long ago. But they don't get any part of that. uh, I think it was Mike uh, Zek, who's the the illustrator. So he doesn't get any more. But but the spinoff is that all of those pages rise in value, right? All the many of the associated pages, comic pages in general have mm-hmm. risen in value. Fantastic. So, so that's that's what I'm saying a little bit is that getting, being involved as a commercial artist, uh, being involved with cultural connective product um, uh-huh. is a way to add value to what you do. And that means maybe working on other people's ideas or actually making your ideas become culturally relevant, which is, ties back to what I would say, do your own ideas because those can become part of that cultural heritage that, that. Oh, thank you. I actually think that's really fantastic advice. I mean, we had, um, I had a Clark Huggins on, he was demonstrating his reckless deck and we were talking about the whole IP thing about developing IP intellectual property. And and that's kind of what you're saying is get associated with a intellectual property or build your own. That's really where some of the value gets added. Right. And, and sometimes they can take off other many, actually to be out probably truthfully, many times they don't. So, but, but you got to keep trying, right? But you do, but yeah, like, like I don't expect my robots or, to just like suddenly go stratospheric. I'm right. creating them because I'm interested in stories they can tell, uh, right. communicate through that, right? And I can sell the paintings, I make a living off it. So those are a consistency to the way I like to make art. And, but 
yeah, but 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 I'm making sure that I can build a world. So if I do want to leverage it, I can start ratcheting it up and I have that availability, that possibility. Very cool. Hey, I want to thank you for joining me here on the Artist Appeals podcast where I, your host, Aaron Sparler, interview every creative that I can get my grimy little hands on and I ask all of them the question, how do you make money as an artist? We want to know. Aspiring minds want to know. That is the big elephant in the room, is it not? How do you make money as an artist? And to that effect, I'm very happy to announce that I have a new book. So check it out. You can go to How to Make Money as an Artist or How to Make Money with Your Art.com and you can check out the new book. The Artist Appeals. I've combed through all the transcripts from season one and two and pulled out the best quotes, the best stories. I've even included some not twos and uh, compiled them all in a gorgeous book. It's taken years to come together. It's gloriously illustrated with graphics and photographs and examples and all sorts of good stuff. It's really accessible, really, really readable and uh, written in plain English. So please join me at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com and get your copy of the new book, theartistappeals.com. Well, that leads us to A for art. So the appeals is an acronym, art, product, presentation, educate, amplify, licensing, and success. And so that leads us really nicely into how do you make your art? Would you be willing to share with us just a little bit about your creation process? I'd love to to uh, hear oh. a little bit about how do you make your art? How do you create? Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's basically the same process. Uh, starts with sketchbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can you know, grab one real quick right over here. Yeah, let us see. I mean, there's, I've got just does like a dozen, two dozen sketchbooks here. So they all start sketching, uh, playing around with abstract. Here we get close. So on, I guess the right hand side or left, I got you reversing out. One, uh-huh. uh, yeah, there's a uh, the abstracts on one side and a larger drawing that I then communicate to my client, whether it's a book publishing, private commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all the same. I'm always doing these abstract uh, designs first. Thumb, thumb, some people call them thumbnails. I call them you know, abstracts because they're, they're, for me, they're more akin to mm-hmm. playing around with shape design than yeah. specifics. And that's, um, that's every, every single image I make, Aaron, starts that way. It starts with that thumbnailing, with that abstraction. Right. Um, I notice you're using like, black charcoal maybe a white and then sometimes like um, yeah. sienna red so just kind yeah. of a highlight a dark tone and a mid-tone right it's exact that's exactly it uh I, I i started with these tone sketchbooks for life drawing about 20 wow it's going long 23 years ago uh-huh. <laughs> so i love uh, love toned paper have you seen oh, Rathmore's gray journals yeah. i love the gray ones Yep. So I, I use the gray as well in uh, my larger drawings. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, uh, the brown, I think I just, you know, the brown was something I just fell into. Actually, the first sketchbooks, they didn't have gray. So I think way back, like uh, Cachet was doing them. Mm-hmm. Just, 
other company made Earthbound, but uh, the brown was it. So we that's what I used for life drawing. And then I started implementing that in my commercial work uh, ideas. I love it because it allows you to do those highlights. Yes. Yeah. Within seconds, right? Just a few touches of white chalk. You get right. a sense of immediate sense of volume and contrast. Right. And yeah. now how do you take those from that to um, a full-blown work? Like what is your commission process? Uh, Owen Garrett was on and John Sidararius was on um, and they both shared their commission process, which was fantastic because there were some little variations, some little tips or tricks that they, you know, talked about. Mm. Um do you scan them in? Do you? Oh, from there? So, well, the next step is then after I get that approval for those little larger drawings, like the full page drawings, yeah. then I'll get my references. Then I'll photograph a model, get background elements, references and all that. Uh, and then sometimes do a digital compositing of all these things oh, cool. together if it can work that way or just pl- print out and plaster a dozen or so images that are going to inspire me in the drawing. And then oh, I do you collage very... them? You you collage them together, sometimes. like literally sometimes. Yeah, so that's cool. like uh, I've got stuff like kicking around, like really close by. Let's see if I've got ah, yeah. So here's an example. Ah, this this is a uh, my daughter Cecilia. I've got to turn into. Uh, she's got to be uh, Lily, Lily mm-hmm. Potter, okay, with, with a cat and uh, the Marauders map there. So this is the, my digital composite with her. Okay. Moving, you know, using a different head, a hand, uh, and all of that. I love it. Let me grab my drawing over here out of my files. Let us see. Oh, I love those cabinets. Oh, were they handmade? Those custom Uh, cabinets? What's that? Are those custom cabinets? Oh, no, they are uh, oak furniture from like the 1920s. Mm, beautiful. Uh, we had our area in Brooklyn here. We live next to a lot of antique dealers or used, I should say used to be, they're all gone out, gone now. Mm. And uh, they sold one person managed oak furniture, mm. like office furniture. And so I, my whole studio is filled with this oak furniture. Cool. Uh, okay. Let us see that sketch. So that's on toned paper too. You get yeah, this, the is the, uh, this is the gray tone that you like. I love it. I can send you digital files of these if you want to like edit them back in. But this, so this is Cecilia now with the, mm. uh, with the, the, the drawing based off that photographic reference. Right. Fantastic. Um, and then that now becomes the foundation for the final painting. Do you mean an underpainting? Will you use that as an underpainting and attach it to a canvas? Not quite. I don't work on canvas. So I will make a copy of that, scan it okay. in digitally mm-hmm. print it out on archival paper okay and then mount the copy down to a panel board oh cool okay so what i'm actually painting on top of is a reproduction a copy of my drawing not mm-hmm. the actual drawing itself so oh cool so you'll have the original so you could actually sell the original yes. sketch as well <laughs> that's yes that's uh that actually is a wonderful side benefit of the reason why I made, I started doing this. Um, So yeah, that's, that is actually, you know, speaking of how to make money. So that drawing itself will probably could sell for a thousand dollars. So if I mounted that drawing down to the board, 
mm-hmm. I would literally be throwing a thousand dollars away. Right. So we want to get to that idea of how to make money is like looking at leveraging my workmanship and craft choices in the process and how to monetize those sketches. That's why I've stayed making all my drawings on tone paper, Uh preliminaries on sketchbooks that I can either take out and sell if I need to. So it's all about just offering different price points as well in that process. Fantastic advice. Yeah, totally. Um, So I noticed that was really big. Do you photograph that or do you have a really large scanner? How do you get that in? Oh, that's in, it's a piecemeal. So I have one of the large format scanners, but I still need to add, you know, something like that takes two scans. Okay. Uh, And they just, you know, composite digital uh, photo merge and Photoshop uh, is very easily done. And then the advantage See, the, the big bonus here with something like that is once it's digitized, you can scale it. Right. So if you're rushed for a deadline, you bring it down a little bit. If, mm-hmm. uh, as an example, I mentioned that uh, the Mermen painting that became very popular. Right. So that uh, the drawing came out so nice and I really liked it. Right. Uh, rather than making it only like a 20 by 30 inch painting, I made it three by four feet. So I scaled it up huge because it was like, oh, I love this idea. And I made it a huge painting. Mm -hmm. And that painting sold for six times what I got paid for the commission with. So so I leveraged both the commercial commission, right? The sale of the original. I still have the, I could sell the drawing if I want Mm -hmm. to, but I'm not, I'm keeping the drawing because I really like it. Yeah. So these are all like, again, because I had a digitized version of that drawing, right? It was flexible in what I could do with it. Fantastic. As a, as what kind of printer do you have? Sounds like you have a large format printer. Yeah. Or years use... ago I did. Yeah. I, I bought one of the Epson's, uh, the 24 inch wide. Printers. Okay. Fantastic. Um, but, but before that, uh, just to get being realistic, you know, not everyone has three or four grand kicking around. Yeah. Uh, you can go to places like uh, um, now it's FedEx office. Right. And they have large format printers. You could get, you know, something outputted from that and use that as a foundation if you wanted to. Fantastic. Um, yeah. There's a lot of other reasons. Like you don't have to own these big machines until you get the money. There's yeah. other printing resources. You can actually now print on board, like just bring panel board. And there's now like flatbed scanning printers now where you could just like sign, sign printers. Really? You can, but you could do that for your art. You can use the same kind of printers to like make copies of your art and then use that as a foundation. That's yeah. another option. That yeah. is really cool. You know, I have learned so much from these um, podcasts about just from talking to artists about that process, because I do a lot of abstract painting, but just, you know, for oh, yeah. wall decor, Um, and the process and this idea that you're allowed to use references, that you are allowed to make sketches and do underpaintings and enlarge them for the larger piece was a novel concept to me. I don't know why. Oh, right. Yeah. It was almost unheard of actually. Right. It was like, like when I start, like, yeah, we didn't have that option 25, I guess it's almost 30 years ago now, like, uh. Like yeah. to be able to digitize things or, or color printing that on large scale. 
Like yeah. that was so prohibitively costly if you wanted something like that. Right. Like you had to do a little sketch and then maybe you would try and transfer it to a bigger uh, and, and yeah. you were, you know, measuring and transferring and measuring and transferring. Yeah. And and so this idea, this not it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, so and I loved what you said about making multiple products. I know Christopher Burdett says that he uses his line art to create his uh, character line art to create um, coloring books. So he has the the line art that becomes a coloring book and then the art itself becomes the final product and then he has the book. So that leads us to product, which is what you were talking about and how how you create multiple products. what would you suggest or what tips or tricks or advice would you give about like products and turning your art into a product and that fine line between fine art and product? Wow. Uh, Is there one for you? I or? I'm, I'm not much of a product person in, in that. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I, even though I, I offer Giclée prints on uh, mm-hmm. paper and canvas of much of my work, mm-hmm. I tend to believe for me, the value is vested in the originals right. uh, of what I do. But the original and is a product too. Like you're saying, right. the sketch yeah. is a product, the commission is a product, and then the original is a product. I think that's fantastic advice. Um, and- yeah, so they, I, I guess, you know, I have different uses of, 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 of or justifications of why I make product, like prints, I guess, reproductions in a way yeah. of what I'm doing. And I think of them almost always as ways to reach a broader audience uh, of not so much the idea of making profit from them, but rather building fans of what I do. Oh, I love and, that. Uh, and so I, yeah, like I, and so I, when I make and quote unquote a product, you know, for something like a booklet or, or print, mm-hmm. I'm more thinking about who is going to like this as a fan rather than how can I sell this? Right. So I'm, I'm yeah. making something because I know somebody might like it as a fan, yeah. not because I'm just making something to try to sell, to make money. Um, no, that's great. I use the term product just because I find as an artist that selling my originals, I would get attached to them kind of like you do children and it was yeah. hard to let go of them. And so I needed to way to kind of disassociate from the original. Uh, Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. I think it's, I, I just have so many children. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you just start getting rid of them at some point. <laughs> they clutter the house. Like make the place messy. Just, Get just have more children here. there, and that's it. That'll solve your trouble. <laughs> well, no, have... but I, no, but I understand that that, that preciousness, right? Because some, if if it's something that you make, you you have a yeah, you've got an emotional attachment to it, right? Right. I love the, your concept, though. Thank you for sharing that of of thinking them as ways to connect with more people. Yeah, and actually, that's that's why, uh, like, even my originals, I. Uh, you know, I don't, they're, they're mine, but right. they also belong, you know, you know, guess what? We die, we're going to die. Right. And mm-hmm. 
you know, all, all those great people I mentioned, uh, like Walt Disney, J.R. Tolkien, right? They're dead, but their ideas are propagating because they shared their ideas either through like, you know, painters do it through their work, they're through galleries, exhibitions, mm-hmm. popular media product, right? Making movies, things. Through presentation. Comics. What's that? Oh. Through presentation, which presentation, is the next right? step. Yeah, What's- and so you, right. So that, that product is actually very important to reaching, helping to build that cultural, uh, I, you know, intellectual property idea, right? You, you're not gonna get to that threshold of everyone or many people demanding and wanting to see what you do unless you use product, right? Books, prints, mugs, pins, coloring books, like you mentioned with Christopher, like you have to have those things in order to break that threshold or reach that larger threshold. Right. So, yeah. And presentation is the next step, the next subject. So what tips or tricks would you give people about presentation? How do you like to present your work or lessons you've learned? Um, hmm, That's, oh boy. I guess I, I, I've learned not to cut too many corners on presentation that it's for myself. I would rather only show three or four framed nicely, well maintained pieces rather than uh, a bin full of 30 or 40 drawings that are Mm -hmm. inexpensively or cheaply presented. So Mm. there's a certain amount of, uh, aesthetic of craft and care that I believe that's that people respond to. Right. So, 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 so for me, presentation is part of like the packaging of, of culturally signaling to an audience that this is something that's valued. Right. Even if they don't, I mean, if they, even if they might not initially value it, that obviously the care taken with this structure of presentation shows that it is valued by somebody. Yeah. It's perceived value. If you treat something like it's valuable, other people perceive it as valuable. Yep. And that gets back to the idea of pricing, right? So Mm -hmm. I've learned that if you take a $500 painting and you put a nice frame on it, you spend, let's say $250 as -hmm. a frame on it, Mm -hmm. you might be able to charge $2,000 for that painting. Rather than taking a $500 painting saying, I don't want to put money. I got to just put a $50 frame on it and sell it for $600. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's part of the value. Like we're getting, you know, tying back to that value idea of by attaching value. If it first starts with you as an artist, right. You have to care first, mostly about your work. Yeah. And so by building value into it, from that very initial offering, then that helps to create a baseline of integrity upon which other Mm -hmm. people experience your work. Um, How do you maintain your work? You said nicely maintained pieces. I, you know, in transporting work and uh, going to shows, things get damaged and busted up and scratched. And do you have any tips or tricks that you use for shipping and transporting? I'm cheap as hell, Aaron, when it comes to shipping. 
<laughs> so that, that's the conundrum of if you ever work with me, you you like you'll see me like put this two thousand dollar frame on a painting, mm-hmm. and then I'm shipping that sucker by FedEx, <laughs> ground really cheap, like a, a I mean not not relatively cheap, right? I'm, I'm using pine boxes. Pine you gotta boxes. save money somewhere. Yeah, so. that's right. So right, you're right. Yeah, and that's about that's the budget issue. Uh, I don't insure my paintings when I ship them. It's a, a, a good look because it just comes down to like how much money is insurance going to run mm. and how often am I shipping these things? And to be honest, I haven't lost a single painting. I haven't. Luckily, I've been lucky. I you know. would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had paintings that are the, the frames have gotten dinged up. Luckily, right. not the expensive frames because I do. Right. I do pad like. Oh, of course. Of but, course. But yeah, there is those. But shipping, those are aspects of where I try to maintain you know, uh, you know, a frugal approach. That makes sense. Marketing. So yeah. spend the money on the frames, but save some money on the shipping if you can. So do you like make your own pine boxes and stuff you said? Yeah, yeah my own pine boxes. I, uh, I live in New York City here. Uh, people throw away the most amazing garbage and packing materials. <laughs> I, I don't buy bubble wrap. I find you dumpster it. dive. I dumpster. I don't need a dumpster. I walk down the street because people put it out on recycling night. And I, you know, I just my my kids will laugh at me because they, you know, they, they used to joke about it. Now they see the value in it. Because you know, you walk past like a nice, you know, four-inch tube yeah. on the street. And most yeah. people are like that's garbage. Yeah. And that's like, wow, if I cut that in half, that's two mailing tubes, five dollars each. That's ten dollars. Nice. Like <laughs> That's that's like, would you pass by a ten dollar bill lying on the street? No, no, no. <laughs> so that's my frugality, like it, and also it's recycling. So I'm like saving packaging, like it's. Being I'm all about the recycled. The yeah, I'm recycle. all about recycling. Yeah, you reduce, yeah. reuse, recycle. Cycle, mm-hmm. exactly. That's me, that's, and so that's part. You know, and that's part of the reason why I do it. It's like, I don't like why can't this stuff have a second life? And so. Yeah. And that allows me then also, you know, to ship cheaply, but with lots of padding, lots of good padding, because I, I can, I don't have to spend a lot of money on the expensive packaging because I get it for free. I uh, never thought of that as an advantage to live in a New York City free packaging (laughs) material. I mean, I, I am serious. I have never (laughs) bought bubble wrap. And actually one of my great finds one day was, literally like a brand new roll. It's like a big roll of bubble wrap. And it was just sitting there on, in someone's garbage. <laughs> like, you're kidding me, like a brand new roll, like someone, you know, $15, $20 that someone would buy at a store. Ask and they, in the it's universe, just sitting there brand new. <laughs> ask and the universe will provide. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So um, how do you communicate with your audience? How do you educate your audience as to the stories in your work? You said you um, don't consider yourself necessarily a writer, but you are a storyteller, visual storyteller. Do you leave that open to interpretation? Do you do any write-ups yep. on the back or on your blog? Like, what, how do you communicate and educate your audience? As to I don't, uh, work? it is purely, Aaron, it's purely visual. I, I tend not to provide backstory mm-hmm. to, cause I, in a way, like I mentioned, I sometimes don't even have a full backstory yeah. to what's going on. Uh, obviously if I'm doing a book cover illustration, there's the, the book itself, the narrative of the book. So I don't even, 
again, most of my, uh, probably the first 15 years of my career was really about book and game illustration. So all the backstory was provided for Mm. me and my clients. So I didn't have anything to add besides what was already given. Okay. Um, But certainly in these later ones, like the robot paintings, astronauts, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have the world built out uh, and they really are emotional uh, Mm -hmm. for me, like the connections. And I like the idea of, like you mentioned, the ambiguous nature to interpretation. And that is what art is about sometimes. It's about bringing, finding common ground between you, uh, sorry, you as an audience and me as an artist. And that interpretive material of of that art that I've made sits in between. Right. Uh, And so I enjoy seeing how people, like the merman on the beach, uh, scene. It actually, that's a scene that's not even in the novel. I kind of made it up <laughs> to, right. for the cover. And it's like, you tell me the backstory there. I, I can tell you why I made it, right. but it's also fascinating to see what people, how they view it, what they, what they read into the material. Do you um, encourage people to write stories about your work and share them on social media or anything like that? No, I haven't. Say- uh, no, that I, I guess I don't, I, I've seen, I, I've, I've had it done a couple of times uh-huh. and it's like, yeah, but that's not it. <laughs> yeah. Good try. No. Yeah. It doesn't like, but it's, it's fascinating. I think, well, it's, <sighs> it's interesting that, that you mentioned that it's a dilemma as a highly realistic artist that I am. Right. And I'm taking sometimes vague words by a writer Uh and making them into cement, like formative, very focused, detailed. But I hate it when people do that to my work (laughs) and go back. So it's like, uh, I can't really be critical of that. Right. right? Because that's all I do. Like I take Lord of the Rings and I make them look real. And I, I, I show you how hobbits look and I show you what Aragorn looks like. And this right. is what Gandalf looks like. And so I kill the imagination in a way. I don't think so. No, I disagree with you because they, you know, that old expression of paintings worth a thousand words. Right. I yeah. sometimes think visuals are more open to interpretation um sure it puts some visuals in your head of oh they have brown hair or they have this hair or that hair but that emotional context that you imbibe into your paintings I think that creates more story more Hmm. question for me at least you know yeah it can on but on some different level and for some audience like as a very good example like lord of the lord of the rings movies right Uh, so up until the movies came out, there truly was a more pluralistic creative landscape over what the Lord yeah. of the Rings was. Right. right? It was you're, very you're old open. To know that, right? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And then the movies come out. Boom. It is. This is what you know, Gandalf looks like. This is what the world looks like. This is right. what the writers of Rohan look like. All because of how informative and connective a movie provides to its audiences. Right. 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 But I just mean like still images 
sometimes yeah. can yeah. like because there's no before and because there's no, no after, after right. in the action to me some still images some paintings like yours can create almost more of a question because right. you no, don't have so, that before and after yes they can yeah right and but but it's also it yes i believe i believe that too yeah and, but it is funny that i do create very concrete images but then that's <laughs> somebody that, that wants to write a story about my images like yeah no, I, I, I don't say no. It's just like, go have fun with it. But I don't not really, gonna. That's not me. I'm not going to be critical. I'm not going to be over supportive either. Right. Uh, it is. Right. It's, it's, a, it, you know, why don't you just write about your own stories? <laughs> like, right. Right. No, right. In a way right. that I'm like, eh, so I can be self-critical. I'm a commercial, like I, you can see, you get, I'm vacillating. Like, yeah, I what gotcha. I do to make a living is I, very concretely interpret other people's stories. And then I go out and say, you should make your own stories. (laughs) But here, here kind of is how I'm tying this back in. So we're on educating your audience with story and Mm -hmm. amplifying, getting bigger. So kind of where I'm trying to lead this conversation a little bit is how do you amplify? How do you scale? How do you get out there to more people? Now you gave us one really great way, which was this idea of creating say prints to reach a wider audience and to provide that wonderful connection and service where, okay, if I make prints of this, more people can have access to it. So, you know, there's so much stuff to cover when I'm talking to artists. That's why I created this appeals acronym, this art, product, presentation, educate and amplify. And it's because it's like, okay, well, there's so many ways to go about this. Let's put all this information in some kind of categories. So I guess my question is, how do you scale? How do you get bigger? Um, If you're educating your audience with visuals and you're providing them with your um, prints and stuff like that, how do you do more with less time? Like, your work is so wonderfully. It, it's frustrating. Right. Uh, what I, are your yeah, tips I, and tricks for working? Oh, and, do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, so, you know, since I, I don't, I've, I've had assistants over the years, but they're more mm-hmm. like part-time here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family doesn't really do much with my business. It's all really only me. Right. Uh, so like, so so when it comes down to, let's say, attendance at a convention or going to a comic book convention or a literary convention, right. I don't go to all of them. Uh, and I'm very, yeah, I'm very selective uh, over what one, what events I do perform at or, or participate in right. uh, because of that time is like important and therefore I need to make sure when I go to an event, it can be appropriately leveraged and connected to what I'm trying to do as a business person, because it's business. It's like, it's, you know, I'm a fan, but I also need to make a living. Right. That's right. the reality. That's why you're having me here. Right. To talk right. about the yeah. real issues. So, so yeah, I have, uh, actually I, I wrote about this on the muddy colors blog that I'm a part of Oh, okay. Uh, these, these four principles that I go through or not go through, but assess the reason why I might go to a convention. Okay. Uh, and it, it's a, let me, we'll have to put a link to it down below. Oh, I'd right. love okay. to read yeah. that article. If you want to very, summarize, that'd be cool. 
Yeah, it's like what I remember. Again, I it's more of like off the cuff thinking, but it, there's uh, one is education, right? Okay. To go there and learn. Uh, okay. The other one is marketing sales directly. Uh, mm-hmm. So trying to make a profit selling your product. Right. Uh, two is the social community that mm. is there. So building reputation with peers uh, and, and educating each other with other artists, connecting to other artists. Right. Uh, and the last one oh, is professional connections. Like, okay. Who are you going to meet there that has potential to hire you as an artist or work with as a gallery or whatever? So those right. are the four elements that I assess every convention. And some, you know, have only one or two. Right. And those I probably won't attend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but things that have all four are like no brainers, like San Diego Comic Con, New York Comic Con, Emerald City Comic Con. These are okay. huge events. World right. World Con, as it used to be, I'd say more, uh, which is the world fantasy and science fiction, uh, world science fiction convention that's held okay. every year. Where's that one? Does it move? Uh, it, it travels around. So it's uh, different places because uh, uh, it does travel internationally and in the States here. Okay. Uh, but that has seen a massive drop off in professional artist attendance. So mm. Uh, art directors and editors aren't there nearly in numbers that they used to be uh, right. you know, 15, 20 years ago. I love hearing about the different conferences and events that people choose to go to. It's, you know, really important, I think, to hear, oh, yeah, I go to this one or, oh, this one's really good because, you know, you don't, yeah. you're not always aware of them. You just yeah, you need it- somebody to say, oh, yeah. Check out this. No, yeah, because otherwise, yeah, you're looking down a list, and this is what I, I share with my students when I teach: is that uh, I share a list of like, here's a bunch of conventions. And what's funny is that there's usually about two conventions every weekend in the states. Okay. Uh, so you could there's like over a hundred science fiction and fantasy conventions you could go to. Oh wow! Oh, so like, which one? <laughs> like, oh, like are you you can't do them all? Uh, so which? And so like, Dragon Con is another like that's what mm-hmm. oh, I've got. Mostly it's, it's a little lacking on the art director, editor mm-hmm. side, but uh, otherwise it's like right up there. Uh, AluxCon is uh, got all four of those uh, yeah. aspects there. Mm-hmm. So it's, so these are, uh, that's, yeah, that's what, and so Amplify, that's, that's part of it is I, I look at what I do with marketing and how can I get the most effective return on what I'm attempting to do? And yeah. it's not always about sales uh, uh, you know, I'm on social media structures. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm participate there, but I don't spend a whole lot of time because I just need to paint. I need to be here working. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Hi there, and I just want to take a quick second to thank you for listening to the podcast. I did this podcast just randomly and for free and out of the blue because I had the question, how do you make money with your art? I wanted to know. I was teaching college for 12 years and then I started my own business and I think it's a question that we don't answer and we don't ask. It's the big elephant in the room. How do you make money as an artist? So I have taken all of these interviews over five seasons, all these amazing creatives, and I've compiled a book. 
that's right there is now a book the artist appeals how to make money as an artist in seven steps so if you would like a gorgeously illustrated book with all of the best tips tricks quotes stories even some um, processes for how to create commissioned artwork and even some stories of what not to do mistakes that i have made and you don't want to make in your career then please join me at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com and get your copy of the new book the artist appeals how to make money as an artist in seven steps so just visit howtomakemoneywithyourart.com and get your copy today thanks a lot how about last well second to last licensing yep. and contracts so what tips or advice could you give our audience on licensing and contract terms wow uh, licensing i almost do zero with uh okay. so i really don't have any spin-off licensing uh structures built into the way i work i i'm really heavily focused on the material uniqueness of yeah. the original art. And that's um, fine. I include yeah. licensing because I've talked to quilt pattern designers. Oh, no, some people and, do, right? Yeah. Right. For some people, that. it's yeah. a big thing. Yeah. But I think with artists, we tend to be a little scared of contracts. And I think no, it's I, an important topic that we have yeah. to hit on, even as a fine artist such as yourself. Um, you do commission work. What kind of terms do you maybe see in your contracts for commission work? Do you use yeah. contracts? And oh, no. Yeah, that, that's the other side is that contracts I do uh, yeah, engage with all the time. So the uh, most book publishing contracts are kind of artist friendly. They allow you to retain most of the publishing rights mm -hmm. with what you do. Uh, mm -hmm. Their game, like working for Wizards of the Coast, is basically a work for hire agreement. So you lose all licensing control of those images. And all that you have left is the sales of original and prints. They mm -hmm. give you back the print option, uh, but not an exclusive. If Wizards wants to make prints, they can do that as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very much aware of uh, licensing uh, or not license, like some of that licensing aspect with related to contracts. And right. Uh, yeah, and, and all the jobs I do, I work with contracts. I, if I'm doing a private commission, I write up a con I have a contract, a basic contract that I utilize in my mm -hmm. uh, dealings with private individuals. And I treat them just like commercial clients. Right. Uh, there, there's really no, almost no difference with right. the integrity. Yeah. So you give even commission, private commissions, a contract, you just say, Oh, I'll send you over the contract. Yeah. If it's, if it's something a little major, like if I'm doing simple sketches, no. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm doing a painting, like an oil painting, you know, we're talking thousands of dollars. Yeah. Uh, it also, you know, it, it's a way to like, we talk about that signaling of like, you know, like talk about framing, like spending money on framing. If, if you're, you know, as a, yeah. as an art collector, you approach a, an artist and they give you back a nicely formal contract that isn't overly legalese. You know, it's, it's a page and a half, but right. it lays out the terms and conditions of your, how you're going to, your money is going to be spent in a way. Right. Right. Uh, if someone's giving me $5,000 for a commission, I'm sure they'd like to know that they're going to get something right? <laughs> and right. They, they're just handing me the money and I'm disappearing like, you know, right. like a shadow. <laughs> right. Right. 
Do you take uh, a deposit and then another yes, usually, payment at sketch delivery and then another at you know, I, I just do like two, thirds? I, I usually just do a deposit and then final payment. Okay. Uh, I, I've worked enough with people and, and being able to assess like who is a little sketchy and then I just won't work. But that's that's super rare. That's almost never happened. Right. Uh, most people, you know, you get the deposit, they're going to pay for the file. Um, mm-hmm. that's, so I don't do sketching, you know, another payment at sketches, another payment halfway through final, and then the final, it's just, uh, deposit up front and at closing. Okay, uh, and that's cool. a way to communicate trust as well with your client. So that's mm-hmm. a, a way to bond with your client is to build that kind of trust mm-hmm. into your relationship. Yeah. Um, and the contracts again are a great way to signal that you're a professional and you have this under management and you know what to do. You're not going to be spacey. I love it. That's such a fabulous point. I don't think any other artist has made that point. So that is really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's in, uh, that's, that's a whole branding marketing of being a professional about what you do and deliver. That's the, the, cause what, like what you're trying to do, like it goes back, this is like bringing back the whole idea of pricing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The way you raise your prices is that you are confident in asking for more. Right. And you are not just confident in asking for more, but you're confident that you know your buyers, that you know your market, that that price increase can be born or possibly integrated into that marketplace. Mm-hmm. So I can't go out there and ask $200,000 for a small painting. Right. You know, I, you know, that happens in the fine art world in a weird way. But again, th- those are those those are like the first out of the gate prices that artists will get. Right. right? But there is a certain a knowledge and uh, expectation in the marketplace that there is a certain you know, pricing structures are what they are. And sometimes I'm seen as being expensive mm-hmm. in this marketplace, but I'm not excessively expensive. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You have to be professional about, do you have, um, standardized pricing for your works? Do you price them by size or do you price them more? Do you have some rules that you use for pricing your work? Yeah, I do have rules. Uh, it is not something that I publish publicly on my site. Um, of course. And partly because to be honest, it's, uh, it's a, sometimes about it, ed- knowing the, uh, the buyer or not the buyer, but your client, right. Uh, that some people, when they see, let's say a size painting, like 18 by 24 inch painting, right. Like, like that's so many square inches mm-hmm. and this is priced at, at, you know, 30, 30 $50 a square inch or something. I'm just throwing a number out. <laughs> They'll whatever, really whatever do that. Is, They'll do the right? math for, yeah, right? for a square but, inch. Yeah. But, but for me, like <laughs> doing, a landscape painting with one figure in it takes one tenth of the time than doing a battle scene with 30 figures, even if it's the same size painting. Yeah. <laughs> so even though, so physically they're the same size, one takes a lot longer, a lot more craft. And so therefore I price accordingly. And so like when you're, so making a public list, it's hard to say yeah. like, like th- this is why it's more expensive. And, but so when I talk people privately, then I can find out what they want to do, what they like mm-hmm. in my work. And then I can 
pass them on the price list that corresponds with the interest and the content that they want to use uh, and see brought to life. Very interesting. So your pricing is more based on content and I love that. That's great advice. That that is for private commissions for, for commercial work. It's Mm -hmm. pretty, it's more flat. Uh, So book covers are pretty like there's a a, four to $5,000 range that I start at. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of gets negotiated a little bit based on what they're looking for. Okay. But, but commercial clients tend to need, have, need to have a, uh, a price structure first and then the content comes later. Okay. And sometimes private clients start with an idea first and then they don't know the scale on what then price. So it's a little more amorphous. Yeah like what can come out of a private commission. Yeah. And I think private commissions, they probably have less of an idea of the amount of work that goes into it. Maybe yeah. a little bit more explaining is necessary. Well, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It can be. And you know, commercial clients though, too, don't sometimes they don't know like, <laughs> yeah, can't you just do this? Like, no, it can't do it. Just do that. Yeah. <laughs> totally. All right. Last letter. S for success. How do you measure and define success? Like what are your measurements for success and how do you celebrate it? Because I found Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of artists, we create and we go, 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 go. And we rarely stop to say, yeah, that was, that was good. And let's celebrate that. So how do you define and measure and celebrate success? Wow. Uh I mean, there are certainly different ways of evaluating. Uh, One of the most important for me is sometimes peer uh, recognition, Mm. uh, peer comments. So from my fellow artists, illustrators, professional friends. So when they tell me something is good, then, you know, it sinks in a little more so. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so part of that is through like competitions. Sometimes if it gets in a competition, Mm-hmm. Uh, that is juried and run by sometimes peers that I, I know, respect, aware of, right, within the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I never feel bad, too bad about, like, uh, like, the, like this past uh, season, the Society of Illustrators has their annual competition. Mm-hmm. And I sent in, I don't know, five pieces of mine where I thought were really good. Right. None of them got in, like <laughs> zero. It's <laughs> like... So that is not my audience, right? Those, those peers who are evaluating that show do not care about my work. Uh, uh, you probably should have just sent something you hated in. Because I find that anytime <laughs> I send in uh, pieces for a juried exhibit or to my agent or something, yeah. they always pick the one that I hate. Not hate. Oh. The, the one that I'm like, eh. You like the least? Yeah. yeah and then, the yeah, it, inevitably. But- but that's why, uh, so, but you know, even, but even within that context of jurors, there were some, there are jurors that I knew who would probably like it. So, but I'm not enough of the other jurors because you have to have usually a threshold of votes. So right. even if I get votes from people who I know who like it, but again, this is a way, this is just one part of evaluation that like peer evaluation, like juries are just one way. Another way is going to shows and mm-hmm. publicly sharing what you do yeah. and just talking to other people. Uh, yeah. sharing, you know, social media. Uh, and it's not so much how many likes you get, but just whether one or two people who you really respect 
see it or comment on it. That's right. right? That's, that's validating uh, yeah. in itself. And yeah. then the other part, like we're talking about sales, if something sells really well, that's another way to get validated. Mm-hmm. And lastly, many times it's just, did I feel good about what I made? Right. Uh, does it communicate the integrity in what I'm doing? And does it motivate me to do another one? And yeah. the, the positivity of making original artwork is that you sometimes only have to connect with one other person who will buy that original. So it doesn't matter if you've got 30,000 likes, if you have five likes, if that one person who likes what you're doing connects with you and buys that original, that's the one like you really needed to get. I like um, that. So it doesn't like the, the numbers are, yeah, they're part of the game, but they are not the only way to evaluate what you're doing as an artist. Do you ever celebrate? Do you ever do anything special to celebrate? Um, uh, no, no. I like, you know, like go out for dinner. <laughs> no, I think. The celebration just comes from the fact I get to do this again. I get to sit down again next week yeah. and continue. And I guess in a celebration, like I'll make a mini booklet of oh. uh, like a collection, like a robot. Like I did I, two years ago, I made a little collection of my robots and put yeah. them into a little booklet. So I guess that's a form of celebration by saying, oh, and, and I've done that with dragons and with other so yeah in a way that's that's my way of celebrating is to make something that i can then share with an audience i'll send it to collectors i'll send it to other friends it's like here or you know i guess some people you can do that with a book like i did that with my middle earth book oh um, really yeah it's, yeah i've got a 200 page book of all of my middle earth content i think i've got one over here now you're making me want one i love books I love to collect books of people oh, I've talked okay. to and yeah, yeah. I, I, I love, um, beautiful. Oh, isn't that gorgeous. So, you know, speaking of like product. So this is one of those examples of like making a, a big book and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just all, it's full color inside. Um, Ooh, beautiful. double page spreads here. And so this is all my Middle Earth content that I've made as a fan. Oh, nice. 200 pages, large, oversized from uh, Dark Horse mm. Publishing. And uh, so that's, uh, but yeah, so here's like monet- monetizing. Mm-hmm. I've made almost no money off this book. So this is where a little failure on my part with licensing and the rights and my royalty arrangement. Right. It, yeah, but I should say, like, again, it's like, it's looking at what, why you're doing something. Right. So, so this book has had a long development. And so it's, it was a success. It, so the first issue, first print run sold out, which is yeah. like four that's or 5,000 copies. Yeah, that's so right. So, but I didn't make a whole lot of money. So my, but directly off the sales. So the right. way I'm making money is that it, it cements me as a middle earth artist. So when I make a new drawing that goes back to that, like Spider-Man, right. The, uh, 
uh, Mike Zek, uh, like the, the drawing, like that's, so his artwork, you know, everything suddenly gets riz, rising because of that high valuation. Yeah. yeah. I can't tell you the number of guests who have been on that have a book in some context or another. Um, but Rebecca Karubla yeah. said it pretty oh, no, well. Um, she's actually a Zentangle, like um, she does Zentangling, which is like doodling instructions. Oh, OK. OK, so she's got like five or six books. And she said, these are my golden ticket into places. They give ah, me yeah. credentials. Yes. They yeah. get me workshop gigs and speaking gigs and teaching gigs. She said they don't necessarily make money on the, their own, but what they do is they give you. Yep. 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 Perfect. Status, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Or credentials. Validation. Yeah. Cultural validation status. And as a fan, it was really honorable to like being able to say, I've got a Middle Earth book yeah. like, uh, as a, as a fanboy. Uh, and so that's really, yeah, <laughs> as a fan but boy. It is, it's that, that validation. <laughs> it becomes a shopping uh, place for people who want to buy a painting. Oh like, yeah. Good point. There's that. So that's what I'm saying. Like it, it's a, uh, it's like the idea of when you go to a, a comic book convention, I see so many artists that go in there and their focus is upon retail monetizing the, the event that weekend mm-hmm. and I'll focus is all about sales, sales, sales of other product. And mm-hmm. they forget about those other three factors of, you know, professional networking, com- you know, community building education. Uh, and those are, that's, that's what, so like the book, a book is more right. You're, you're pointing it out. The other artists have pointed out that book is more than the retail sales of that book. Yeah. yeah so I've- much more. I've had so many artists on that have books and they vary so widely from coloring books to uh, instruction books to intellectual property and world building. So there's so many varieties of books that you can do. But I think that's neat that you use it as a little reward for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's a, that's, that's that celebration aspect of success is like, I'll want to collect it and share it. And so that's, that's what I know I've done something good. So yeah. it's, that's a large threshold. That's not like one or two paintings, right? We're talking, <laughs> this is like a, 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 a ground swell, a, a multitude of imagery. I yeah. think it's really gratifying when you see a body of work. Yes. And it, it very much is right. Yeah. yeah. The power is in the body of the work. Yep. And that swings that, that connects a lot of what we've talked about today, Aaron, is like that idea of, uh, you know, price rising, success, marketing. It's, it's a, when, when you have a consistency of voice that unifies what you do artistically, then that becomes, again, that wonderful linking structure that allows you to celebrate, to market, to mm-hmm. leverage that connective material amongst all of those images, images and products to create a strong kind of integrity to what you do as an artist. Yeah. Uh, hey, where can people get your book? Where can people hire you? Where can they take classes with you? Oh, hook us up with contact. Wow. Oh, boy, a lot. <laughs> I guess I have to email those to you, but uh, you know, yeah, I, I we'll put them down them. below. Yeah. Well, what's your yeah. website to start? Oh, website is just donatoarts.com, plural. Uh, and uh, so Donato Arts with an S on the end. And 
I've got an extensive amount of material there, imagery, some short videos, how-to videos. I've uh, watched them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. They're Great. good. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see what else. Uh, I, I teach. Uh, I have a kind of like a semesterly class. So spring semester is it's sold out already, but uh, I only teach eight students. So it's, it's a very small class. Uh, is but it it's online? online? Yeah, it's online. Yep. Uh, I want to take your class. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do. I'll, I'll put you through the grinder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let's I haven't see. done figure painting in a long time. Oh, I don't actually. I don't teach painting. Uh, I I teach storytelling. Oh. So, yeah. That my focus is on communicating narration and story. Okay. So, yeah, I don't. I mean, admittedly, I, I will introduce my principles, my painting, and uh-huh. the process, but I don't project that onto my students. I, right. I work with what they're, what they're doing with right. their ideas, with their techniques. Yeah. Now, is your class linked off your website? Could people get notified if they want to take your class when it reopens? Oh yeah. It's buried in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, the thing is it's, it's sold out like within two hours, I think this year, as soon That's as it right. went live. So it's with the smart school, but yeah, you can find the link there on, on my website. What is smart um, school? Uh, Smart School is Rebecca Gay uh, is the artist, uh, illustrator, painter that mm-hmm. started this 12, you know, about 11 years ago. Okay. And uh, and so it's been running, yeah, since. Oh, and, cool. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not with like an institution or anything. It's just a, a small group of artists, like 10 or 12 of us that offer classes. And Rebecca is the organizer. I think I heard about that at a Lux Con. It's re- it's a spinoff from the Illustration Masterclass. Okay, I've heard of that, but okay. that was a very successful in person event, and mm-hmm. then COVID killed uh, that. Yeah. So darn you, COVID. Been, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all looking forward to getting back to yeah. in person events. I am. I am. Definitely am. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening to the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed these episodes. I've recorded these free of charge to anybody. But if you'd like to buy something, we do now have a book for sale. That's right. (laughs) I'm so excited. I actually wrote a book with a little help from our guests. I took the transcripts from the first two seasons and I combed them line for line to find the best quotes, the best stories, the most actionable advice on how to make commissioned artwork and all sorts of things. And I put them all in a book. Combine them with my experiences. I even put in some don't do this, make this mistake type of articles. And We've made it into a gloriously beautiful, colorful, fully illustrated, with lots of pictures and lots of examples book. You can check out the book at howtomakemoneyasanartist.com. That's right. That's the domain name, howtomakemoneyasanartist.com. You can get to it from the Artist Appeals dot com as well but just visit how to make money as an artist.com to order your copy of the new book the artist appeals i'm very proud of it and i think you're gonna love it thanks for joining me on the artist appeals and i'll talk to you soon bye